Belgium, 1976. The 80s are almost upon us and you are looking to do some interrailing around Europe because that is how you, in 1976, choose to live your life. And any pilgrim serious about discovering all that Europe has to offer cannot ignore Belgium, a country that has truly found herself. Belgium is a multicultural, multilingual gem nestled in the heart of Europe. Belgium is a small country with big promise and bigger dreams. Her people walk with their heads held high, happy to be living in a place with a fantastic standard of living, buttressed by a robust welfare state. So why not start in the north of the country, in the Flanders region, and visit Bruges, the Venice of the north, to marvel at her magnificent belfry, her industrious lace artisans, her beautiful canals, and enjoy a cheeky lager at the De Havman Brewery. Why stop there? With her excellent public transit network, anywhere in Belgium is just a train ride away. Head southeast, and you'll eventually find yourself in Ghent, home to a thriving jazz scene and the famous Ghent Nose Candies. A short rail trip north will land you in Antwerp, party town and center of the world's diamond trade. Head south of Brussels and you may be surprised to discover, friend, that everyone is now speaking French instead of Dutch. You haven't suffered brain damage. You are in fact now in the magical land of Wallonia. Explore the mysterious and beautiful forests of the region. Enjoy the exuberant art of living so admired around the world. And when you are ready, journey to the heart of Belgium. Brussels. And it's here in Brussels where we truly see just how far Belgium has come since the dark days of World War II and the momentary embarrassment of the loss of her African holdings. Brussels is the de facto capital of the European community. It is a thriving hub of politics and business and culture. If Belgium is the model for the European project, then Brussels is that model in microcosm because here, dignitaries and officials and VIPs from around the world converge to discuss the issues of the day and find dynamic solutions to the continent's ills. Enjoy a delicious local craft beer and a waffle as you tilt your gaze skyward to appreciate the incredible recently completed World Trade Center complex. Two gleaming skyscrapers that stand as totemistic testament to the remarkable changes afoot. And for ultimate proof of how important Belgium has become to world affairs, you could do no better than take a jaunt uptown to the superb new NATO headquarters built with proud, honest Belgian labor. The NATO building is a powerful symbol of Belgium's strategic value in the escalating Cold War and her hard-won status in Europe. So too is the fact that the last two NATO leadership meetings have been hosted in Brussels. Let's see the Reds take a bite out of this waffle. Yes, Belgium in 1976 is a little slice of everything. And with a new decade just around the corner, the sky truly is the limit. But look a little bit deeper as this interrailer traveling around Belgium in 1976 
and pay attention to the whispers, to the streets, as they say, because you will find pretty quickly unsettling indications that all is not well in the kingdom. See, the oil shock of 73 has thrown the country into this long recession, and the economic problems are entrenching those regional divides that we've mentioned before deeper and deeper. The Flemish are experiencing an uptick in their fortunes because multinational corporations are investing heavily in car manufacturing and agriculture in the north. By design, then, Whenever you visit this part of Belgium, you are made to feel that you are actually in an entirely different country called Flanders. And you feel like the Flemish are only reluctantly signed up to the Belgian project and they would quite like to take the money and run, thank you very much. They want independence and the more extreme elements of the Flemish right hint that they are willing to go to war to obtain it. The Walloons, meanwhile, languish in the depressed south. The local steel, iron and coal industries are disappearing. People here keep voting for a succession of leftish politicians who promise a more equal share of Belgium's wealth, only to arrive in Brussels Parliament and realise there is no such thing as Belgian politics. There are two countries with two governments navigating separate political systems that happen to share the same address. There's a red light district in every major city, and when businessmen and politicians from around the world head to Belgium to close a deal, it's understood the wife and kids are staying at home. And word has it, Belgian fixers have created this weird little cottage industry around filming and photographing these dalliances and blackmailing hapless philanderers for a fee or a favour. The country's location and its numerous parts make it an ideal hub for smuggling of all kinds, and Brussels now boasts a thriving underworld of gangs from across Europe. Crime syndicates move everything from drugs to arms to diamonds and cars, but local small business owners are also getting into the rackets now. Take guys like Patrick Hamus. He's this rich kid gangster whose daddy Achille gave him a nightclub as a birthday present back in 73. When the nightclub mysteriously burned to the ground, even Achille's friends in the government couldn't muscle the insurance company to pay out. Hamus then is looking to invest heavily in the flourishing drug market. And in lieu of the insurance money, he's going to find seed investment from bank jobs and kidnappings. In government, as said, it's the same gridlock as ever. You've got elected officials talking at cross purposes and kickbacks and clientelism are the order of the day. Paul van den Buynans is still somehow walking the corridors of power, this time as Minister of Defence, despite allegations of corruption and incompetence. And rumour has it, he's mobbed in deep with a hidden network of fascists in the Belgian establishment and he's using his contacts at the Societe Generale, the Belgian bank, to help Zaire's Mobutu funnel millions into offshore accounts. Naturally, VDB gets a percentage. It's too much of a threat to our sanity to even contemplate the psychedelic sprawl of Societe Generale in 1976, or the control it exerts over Belgium as a state within a state. The cops, they just pick and choose what crimes to investigate based on their local, regional allegiances, because policing is as politicized and influenced by the patronage system as everything else in Belgium. The gendarmerie is straight up fucking scary, friend. 
the drugs unit that was established in 1974 and trained by the American DEA, is said to already be involved in heroin smuggling and gun running. They like cracking heads and getting paid. Other gendarmes pull double duty as security for crooked Belgian politicians, businessmen, and gangsters at VIP parties where the real business of state is conducted. The honest gendarmes have to contend with colleagues who also work for the Belgian Stay Behind Network, the Secret Service, organized crime, the CIA, or some combination of all of these. Plus, there are the Nazis. Lots and lots of Nazis. Because some of the gendarmes like to spend their free time shooting guns and training for anti-communist operations with far-right paramilitary clubs sponsored by Benoit de Bonvoisin and his SEPIC colleagues. In 1973, we heard rumours that elite sickos were planning an authoritarian coup with the help of Belgian MPs. Well, it's three years later, and there are once again dark murmurings that some kind of move against Belgian democracy is underway, and that it's going to take the form of what the Italians have been calling the strategy of tension. The Belgian right is none too impressed with the spread of leftist radicalism on Belgian campuses and the growing appeal of Euro-communism. So they party into the wee hours of the morning at Brussels hotspots like Le Jonathan, they dream up ways to decisively defeat the left while hoovering up lines of coke and downing elaborate cocktails. And then there's the long-running saga of Count Alain de Viegas and his pal Aldo Bonasoli and their attempts to find funding for this madcap oil sniffer prototype that they've dreamed up. At last count, they pulled in French intelligence agents members of the Pinay Circle and crackpots from Opus Dei to help them set up this complex financing scheme. And talk is they're now meeting with officials from ELF, which is a French firm, to get the money to build what they're calling a gravity wave oil detector. And if all that isn't enough to tantalize you, how about Prince Albert and his dazzling bride, Princess Paula? Everyone knows that Brainless II is addicted to cheating on his wife. One Flemish newspaper has a running joke that everyone born in Belgium after 1960 or so is probably a royal thanks to him. Albert took a trip to Saudi Arabia in October of 75 where he helped get the Eurosystem Hospitalier construction deal across the finish line. After he got back to Belgium, Paolo discovered that all that talk of his nature exploration and his nature expeditions on these solo excursions abroad was his staff's ironic code for various women that he'd slept with. Apparently, that Saudi trip wasn't just an expedition, it was a fucking safari. And with the contract signed and the Eurosystem project already becoming mired in bankruptcies, allegations of financial misconduct, and straight up bribery, Paula is dreading what the press attention may expose about her marriage and her husband's extramarital hobbies. Pilgrim, Belgium in 1976 contains multitudes and anything is possible. I had a dream.
dream about this place. discussed the concept of sovereign immunity in episode one and it's worth considering now how this extends not just to members of the royal family who don't sit on the throne but people in the orbit of the royals as well because being friendly with or useful to the belgian monarchy like any country with a royal family it brings you under the umbrella of their protection um Kim Baudouin, he wasn't an especially gifted man. You know, he wasn't a great orator or a charismatic leader or particularly intelligent or wise. He was also racist in that specifically weird and unnerving way that European aristocrats are. Uh, he was threatened by the winds of change in Africa and he was aggressively in favor of Lumumba's overthrow in the Congo. But for all that, he brought what was seen as a level of seriousness and respectability to the crown that was desperately needed in the aftermath of World War II and the royal question and in the midst of the Congo crisis. Now, not to harp on about the socio-political function of the Belgian monarchy yet again, but I found a quote, and I cannot for the life of me remember who said it, um, it could be by Paul Berlion, who is a Flemish writer. But to paraphrase, he said something to the effect of, Belgium in some way serves as a lab and a testing ground for the people who dream of a European superstate. Belgium, therefore, requires a strong monarchy around which to unite its various conflicting factions. If the monarchy collapses, Belgium collapses. If Belgium collapses, so does the dream of the federal superstate. And I tell you this not because Nick or I agree with it, but to give you a flavor of how many of the people at the top levels in Belgium and the EU thought about the country during the Cold War and how many of them still think like that today. It was good for them to have a king who took his role seriously and fell in line with the political direction of Belgium. And Baudouin's younger brother, Albert, was by contrast anything but serious. Uh, where Baudouin was brooding, anxious, prone to fits of depression, Albert was a party animal. He was always looking for new clubs and bars to hit up. His ambition was to make his life one long holiday. Born in 1934, he barely graduated high school, served a spell in the Navy, but never particularly impressed his superiors. Whenever possible, he would escape to his luxury villa in the south of France, and he and his entourage of armed security guards and assistants were known to buzz around Belgium on motorbikes just for kicks. Then he met Paola Rufo di Calabria at the coronation ceremony of Pope John Paul XXIII in November of 1958. In breaking with the tradition of arranged marriages in the Belgian royal family, Harbert proposed to her without asking permission. Some details on Paola. She was born in Tuscany to an Italian duke, Fulco Rufo di Calabria, 
who served in Mussolini's cabinet and was a no-spoken supporter of the fascist government. He was convicted after the war for his complicity with the government's crime. Her mother was a descendant of the Marquis de Lafayette as well. So it's easy to see why Albert was so taken with Paula. She looked like a movie star and she shared his distaste for responsibility and indeed most forms of physical labor. Yeah, and the couple struggled for a very long time to win Belgians over. Uh, so for example, a tradition in Belgium is that citizens donate money to a kitty for a newlywed royal couple. And the custom then is for the royals to donate that money to a worthy charity, you know. But Albert and Paula, they pocketed their cash and fucked off on a yachting holiday for a month. And then when they returned to Belgium, both of them spent most of their time uh, partying in the clubs of Brussels. They became famous actually around this period for never doing anything through the day that might tire them out for the nightclubs in the evening. And Paula made no secret of how incredibly boring and annoying she found royal duties. Uh, she was known to make a show of theatrically checking her watch and yawning whenever she'd had enough at state functions. She refused to learn Dutch because she considered it an ugly and silly language. She wore miniskirts around Brussels and posed for bikini shots on holiday. This outraged the conservative Belgian establishment. And then word leaked in the gossip mags that she'd made fun of Baudouin's wife, Fabiola, for being unable to carry an heir to term. Now, if you're thinking that Albert sounds a little bit like Britain's Prince Andrew, you are correct. Uh, the spare heir who can afford to fuck around partying while his brother is groomed for the job of king. And the similarities don't stop there, because in 1962, Albert was made the president for the Belgian Institute for Foreign Trade. And as with Andrew's trade envoy jobs, this was a make-work role that was designed to achieve a few objectives at once. For starters, making the heir presumptive the president of the BIFT gave the position an aura of importance that it might otherwise have lacked. It sent a clear signal that Belgium was serious about doing business, and this opened doors for Belgian companies abroad. It also got Albert Press for something other than dicking around in Brussels nightclubs because it allowed him to chase other women far away from the prying eyes of the Belgian scandal rags. And so then, in October of 1975, Albert led a trade delegation that visited Saudi Arabia to ash out the fin final details of a construction project spearheaded by a firm called Eurosystem Hospitalier, headed by a guy called Daniel Cauchy. The contract was for the construction of two 500-bed hospitals and attendant infrastructure for the Saudi National Guard, one in Riyadh and one in Jeddah. It was signed in June of 76. Harbert's presence at the meetings was heralded as the X-factor that persuaded Prince Abdullah bin Abdulaziz, the brother of King Khaled, to go with the Belgians instead of the Anglo-American firms they had been originally looking at. He liked the royal touch, or so the Belgian president government told everybody. Eurosystem Hospitalier brought together eight of the biggest construction firms in Belgium, some of which were financed by shady men like our good friend Baron de Bonvoisin, and they entered into a consortium with a firm called PRB. PRB was a subsidiary of Société Générale and had overall control of the Eurosystem Hospitalier project, at least in theory. So to make a complicated story as simple as possible, PRB had fucked up when reading the fine print and they didn't realize that under Belgian law, 
Even though they owned 51% of the shares in this venture, that only translated to 20% of the board votes at Eurosystem. That meant that Koshi was effectively in control of the entire project, and the subcontractors that he chose for some of the work were very slow to deliver. One of them, a Mexican firm, that went bankrupt, money started to vanish into thin air, and as delays created more delays, the Saudis stopped writing checks. Eurosystem Hospitalier soon went bankrupt, and the entire project was cancelled. Societe Generale was doubly embarrassed because around the same time, another subsidiary of theirs called Sibetra was also facing bankruptcy in Iraq. Sibetra had been contracted to build a plant for phosphate-containing fertilizers. The Belgian government, fearing a second disastrous venture in the Middle East would deal its international reputation a serious blow, stepped in to keep the project going with public money. And all told, they blew 5 billion francs and Sibetra went bust anyway. And there's a whole tangent to this story about the plant they built, uh, because allegedly it gave Iraq the ability to develop yellow cake uranium. And this in turn connects to the Iran-Iraq war, Iran-Contra, and the enterprise, which we've discussed at length in the past. So we're not going to get ourselves lost in the weeds tonight. So far, this is all fairly typical of these kinds of large-scale construction projects, uranium aside. Uh, after Eurosystem went bankrupt, though, the Belgian press found evidence that Eurosystem, and by extension Société Générale, had paid as much as 8.5 billion francs in bribes, kickbacks, and mysterious commissions to both Saudi and Belgian intermediaries and fixers to win the contract. These payments continued even after the deal was signed and continued for a while after the entire thing fell apart. So these Belgian intermediaries, they were never named publicly, but there are strong suspicions that Albert and his private circle was part of the scam. Parliament declined to investigate this role in subsequent inquiries. Sovereign immunity, don't forget. This is not the first time that you will hear that tonight. Wilfried Martens, the Belgian Prime Minister at the time, flat out said that no member of the Belgian royal family would ever be so much as accused of illegal activity on his watch. Things got wilder and sleazier though, because it turned out that not all the bribes were paid in cash. To understand what else was happening in Belgium and Saudi Arabia, and a major reason why the contract went to the Belgians and how the Saudis were finessed when the project started running into difficulties, we have to talk about Eurosystem Hospitalier's public relations director, a woman called Fortunato Abib Israel. So Fortunato was born in Egypt in the late 30s into the upper middle class in Alexandria's small Jewish community. And she attended the NIC. The Lycée Français d'Alexandrie. It's a very uh, fancy uh, school in Egypt. Right. Right. Um, now, very little is known about her early life, but shortly after the Suez crisis, she emigrated to Europe and she could speak fluent Arabic, English, French, Dutch and Hebrew. And she married and settled in the Netherlands, and she worked as a stewardess for the Italian airline Alitalia. 
uh, in the early 70s then, she divorced her husband and she suddenly appeared in Brussels. At some point, she became the mistress of Roger Boas. Boas was the head of ASCO, which was a Belgian arms company that also had a stake in the Eurosystem Hospitalier project. Boas was mobbed in deep with the Belgian establishment, with powerful friends in politics and at the Société Générale. Close to Paul van den Buinens, he'd gotten a state contract, courtesy of VDB, to provide tanks for Belgium in a deal worth 20 million Belgian francs. Asco is going to appear again in this series, so remember that name. So, Fortunato was also a high-class escort, and it's possible she had been a sex worker since her time in Egypt. On arriving in Belgium and being introduced to Boas World, she realized that there was a huge gap in the market for an escort service that could pimp beautiful women to powerful people. I love that she recognized that gap in the market just within a, f- right. a couple of weeks of landing in Belgium. She's like, what this place needs is a high-class escort service. This is what we're missing. <laughs> and so um, there's also a reason to believe that she had already been running a luxury call girl networks you know, before she arrived in Belgium. And that's because there are strong indications that she was uh, a Mossad operative. And on top of that, uh, Roger Boas himself was very close to Israeli intelligence, you know, working in arms deal and all that. And so it's extremely interesting, interesting that he not only had an affair with her while she was running that escort network, but also, you know, he used this pool at Eurosystem Hospitalier to make her the public relations director. And so, you know, it's the type of um, vice network that offers huge blackmail opportunities to intelligence outfits. Yeah, and we've been here on this show multiple times before. So in her position at Eurosystem Hospitalier, Fortunato is supposed to have pimped as many as 200 luxury escorts to Belgian and Saudi VIPs. Now, some of these Saudis wanted longer-term deals with particular girls from her agency. So Fortunato began offering her ladies two-year nursing contracts in Saudi Arabia. And nursing contracts there is very much in air quotes. And she was swamped with clients. So she turned to her friend, Nick. Lydia Montaricourt. Thank you. To subcontract the workload. Um, And eventually Lydia took over the entire operation at Fortunato's request. And what Fortunato and then Lydia's network specialized in was orgies. Now for a fee, Belgian and Saudi VIPs could attend one of their parties and enjoy all the drugs and group sex they could handle. When this got out to the press in 1979, journalists immediately took to calling them pink ballets. But there's a very important footnote here. We have to understand in discussing the Pignon affair that there are actually two levels to the pink ballet scandals of the late 70s or the ballet roses. So if you are episode one of this series, you'll remember that the term comes from France, where it was used by a journalist in 1959 to describe orgies and sex parties in which police officers, intelligence agents, local notables, and even the president of the French National Assembly were all participants. Underage girls were involved in these sex parties. They took place in the Assembly President's hunting lodge near Paris, but also in public places like the Palais Bourbon, which is where the National Assembly is held. Some of these parties, before getting sexual, would involve striptease and dancing, which is why it was named that Ballet Rose, Ballet referring to ballet dancing. Nobody disputed that the 1959 sex scandal in France involved children. They were French sex parties, after all. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> and so there's variants. You, you know, you have your standard pink ballads that featured young girls associated with the color pink. Then you have, you have also the blue ballads, so-called, because there were sex parties with young boys, so they're associated with the color blue. Um, most of these young girls were lured to the pink ballads with the promise of meeting important people, having their artistic careers take off. Uh, and, you know, this will track later on with the uh, ex-witnesses in Belgium. However, at this point in our story, very important to remember this here, it gets overlooked quite a lot. So we're in early 1979 when this scandal breaks. The pink ballets that initially made the headlines in Belgium were not child abuse parties. The term was used to describe group sex with high-class escorts. It was a good time between consenting adults, as long as you had the money. That was where the initial salaciousness of the scandal came in, that it was all these rich, wealthy Belgians and international businessmen that were using the services of this call girl network. Now, off the back of this, researchers sometimes describe these parties as the true pink ballets. And the rumored orgies that involve children are called the false or dark pink ballets. And as the scandal exploded and the press went to work trying to untangle the Byzantine financial scams of the Eurosystem project and the call girl network, the Belgian establishment decided to tie the investigation off quickly to avoid embarrassment. And what everyone at risk here knew was that if they were sufficiently important, they could rely on their friends in politics and the judiciary to make the case disappear or slow down any investigation or prosecution long enough for the statute of limitations to expire. The police were therefore directed to target Fortunato, Lydia, and the girls who worked for their escort ring exclusively. So Fortunato was then arrested, question. But we suspect by that point, the cops were well aware of the full extent of her connections and just how much dirt she had on members of the Belgian establishment. She was detained purely for appearances. She confessed to running a Colger ring, but as soon as she was released, she then moved on to Malta to work for a company owned by Roger Boa, and then the Belgian cops never pursued her again. The reason the cops decided to leave her alone was probably because of what they found at her apartment. They had confiscated her journal, as well as a client list stretching back to the early 70s, 200,000 Belgian francs in cash, Letters from customers, boxes of photographs taken during the adult pink ballets. Uh, and for some reason, they also took her dildo and her vibrator collection as evidence. Uh, I mean, <laughs> is, that, is that a crime, enjoying her own company? The, the client list used uh, first or last name only. And there's uh, an Albert on there, you know, funny coincidence. Uh, and rumors in the Belgian press at the time said that on hearing about this, Paola moved into the West Wing of the mansion she shared with the prince, and she was seriously considering divorce, at least until Albert hired uh, a lawyer to threaten her with financial ruination if she embarrassed him in such a public way. Public way. There's also uh, the name Borir on the client list. Lieutenant General Fernand Borir, he just happened to be the head of the Belgian gendarmerie, and the phone number of the client list matched his. Leaks from the gendarmerie were happening almost every day at this point, and police sources told the press they'd found pictures of Borir naked and pissed out of his mind at the orgies. But then things took a darker turn in March of 1979 when Maud Sa, who was one of Fortunato's girls, was arrested and interviewed. In custody, she told the police that on multiple occasions, underage girls had 
being pimped to members of the Belgian establishment at the Pink Ballets. The cops took it seriously enough to begin a deeper investigation into the tuna Lydia vice ring. Within a matter of days, the client list and the photographs of the orgies all disappeared from the police evidence room. And to this day, nobody knows what happened to them. Maud Sarr also talked of a young boy named Charles, who was present at the Pink Ballets, whose role was pleasuring the bisexual clients. The cops working the child abuse angle of the case were then transferred to other posts and the investigation was shut down. And this will become a recurring pattern in episodes to come. Similarly, Lydia had been just sentenced to 15 months in prisons. Uh, if you know anything about the Belgian justice system, you know it moves so slowly, it looks practically inert from a distance. Yet, within weeks of being arrested, she had been processed and sentenced. And as soon as Mozart dropped her bombshell claims, Lydia was just quietly released, given her money back, and then she quickly moved to France. I wonder if the cops kept the dildos and vibrators, or if she got them back as well. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question, actually. Um, and that seemed to be pretty much that, you know. But then a psychiatrist filed for divorce. The Pinot affair began. So the Pignon Affair was named after a psychiatrist, a Dr. André Pignon. The Pignon Affair is not to be confused with the Pignon file that was composed of various photographs and incriminating documents that you know, accused various Belgian elites of being a part of the pink ballets, the dark pink ballets. They're obviously related, but the Pignon file would go on to expand while the Pignon Affair would wither away to nothing. Now, part of the Pignon file, a good 150 pages of police reports, appeared on WikiLeaks in January of 2009. It's part of a larger release regarding Paul Latinus, with the files likely coming from a police source, you know, someone who worked directly on Latinus back then. But how does the story start, Nick? So, our well, story starts with Dr. André Pinon and uh, another familiar figure, actually, the duck, Christian Smith. Uh, in 1963, a young Pinon, who had just started studying medicine to become a psychiatrist, lived in a cot, that's what we call a student apartment in Belgium. And in the same building, in other apartments, that's where uh, André met his future wife, Josiane Genio, and that's where he meets his soon-to-be friend, Christian Smets. So at the time, Smets was studying Roman philosophy before he dropped out of university and then applied to become Belgian state security. The couple and Smets were pretty close. They would go on to become friends over the years. Smets living even close by the house and, you know, visiting from time to time, uh, even after the couple moved out. Uh, and Pinon had things to say about Smets. You know, he said that even before working for state security, he sometimes had to do it, you know, like he had places to be, stakeouts to do. Uh, he was unemployed, mind you. Uh, and that he, he claimed to have friends in the French OAS, 
Pinoto, this military service, had turned him more anti-communist. So Dr. Pignon married his wife, Jazian, in 1970, and they soon had two children. Schmetz joined the state security in 1972. Now, the couple and the duck kind of fell off, you know, they lost touch with each other, or so it seemed. And Pignon began a career in Etobique Psychiatric Institute while his wife worked as a secretary of a minister's cabinet. The name of this minister was François-Xavier de Donnier. Uh, his full title is actually François-Xavier-Gustave-Marie-Joseph-Cornier-Hubert-Ni de Donnier de Armois. That's pretty impressive. Thank you. Things were good for a time, but then in 1979, the couple hit a rough patch and Dr. Pignon filed for divorce. He was paranoid that his wife was cheating on him. He'd begun to suspect that. This was March of 1979. Um, he hired a private detective called Bob Louvigny to spy on Josiane. And there's an interesting fact here, which is that Bob was a former military intelligence officer linked to SDRA, just like his dad had been. And his detective agency was going to be used a few years later by gendarmes in the Brabant killer's case. He loved practical shooting as well, which was a hobby shared with many people who were close to or part of the Westland New Post, as well as various military men and other cops. This is a technique that we'll see used in later attacks, this kind of military training. And just as an aside, you may remember from the Olaf Palme episode that Swedish Gladio also recruited from a lot of local shooting clubs that were frequented by cops and uh, army officers. And then the Pinot divorce was fully on the way, you know, typically messy and unpleasant, endless arguments over alimony payments, custody rights. Josiane was initially granted custody of the kids where that was done for aggravated assault and the judge decided he could pose a threat to his grandchildren. So the kids were placed in foster care until various issues related to the divorce were settled. And as part of this, the judge ordered the couple to meet privately and make one final attempt at reconciliation. In August of 1979, Pinon had a discussion with his wife. They were supposed to meet at a private place near Lac Genvale, just out of Brussels. It's a, it's a charming little lake, you know, they're sitting by the lake. Uh, they get to talking and she tells him that she has revelations to make. The first of which is that she's had several affairs. Now, at the time in Belgium, marital infidelity had a massive impact on the outcome of divorce proceedings and child custody battles. So Josiane goes further though, and she starts describing wall parties she had been attending with her lovers, sex parties. She names two doctors, Bettens and Krokart, and... <laughs> A familiar face again, Christian Smets. Turns out that the duck is Josiane's lover. She talks of drugs, even sometimes minors being involved in these parties. She says she was an unwilling participant in this aspect of the group sex, but she was afraid of the people, you know, that were involved. And rightly so, because she speaks of Belgian establishment types, you know, uh, two MPs, royal prince, magistrates, arms dealer, Gendarmerie bosses, you know, none of these people were publicly named, but you see the kind of people they were. And it turns out that Pinot had been recording his discussion with a hidden mic with the help of Louvigny just standing a few meters away besides a tree. This is probably an, an inappropriate moment, but I find that image so funny of the private investigator just hiding behind a tree, like watching this conversation. 
it's so Pink Panther, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's ridiculous, really. Like, just imagining him standing beside the tree with this little cable. I, I don't know, they expected to not be found. Could he not sit in the car or something? You know what I mean? Like, fucking dictaphone, man. <laughs> Use a dictaphone right. next time. They were doing it old school. <laughs> <laughs> so, with, with his mic, you know, just trying to get some dirt uh, on, on, on his wife, you know, to to boost uh, his case um, for full custody. Uh, he was just expecting her to, you know, just go on about uh, the people she had cheating on him with. But she started talking about these orgies and, you know, there's children involved. And he realized this could be part of the Joe system, you know, the pink ballots, Colgo scandal that had been in the news. So his wife obviously noticed the private investigator standing by the tree and she confronted him. But by that point, it was too late. So she told Dr. Pignon and his private investigator that if any of this is made public, if any of it is released in court, she is going to deny it all. So the original tape is immediately given to a court bailiff and Pignon keeps a copy for himself. Everything that Josiane had told Dr. Pignon was disturbing enough, but some of the other details gave him serious cause for alarm because she had mentioned that the children that were sent to these parties were obtained partly through a youth court judge who was in charge of like orphanages and other institutions where children were isolated. These kids would just be picked up from these institutions and then delivered to the parties. Whatever happened would happen and then they would just be taken back. But remember, Pignon's own kids at that moment are in foster care while this divorce battle gets settled. So imagine how he felt knowing what the consequences of going public with any of this could be for him and for his kids. Now, some of these places where the parties were held uh, were named or described by Josiane. There were various houses and apartments in Brussels and the Walloon-Brabant province. There was a circus nightclub in Brussels. A very selective golf club was also mentioned, as well as a very selective tennis club, both, again, in the Walloon-Brabant province. A few days later, on September 7th, Pino's house was broken into and ransacked by robbers. Mm. Nothing was stolen, despite him having a new color TV, expensive cameras, uh, easily findable money laying around the house. They were looking for something very specific. And as they rummaged through Pinon's belongings, they seemed to realize it was obviously not there. Uh, Pinon said he was afraid of whoever broke into his home uh, because they were looking for the tape. He filed a complaint at his local police station. He gave them the tape and a transcription. And here begins the infamous Pinon file. So... It's a bit confusing, but the term would be used through years to describe multiple states and variations of both the police file, so the one that started there, and then private files that were added to it, you know, documents and pictures related to the Pinot affair, but also to the Pink Ballots parties. Basically, there are multiple Pinion files that are being kept by um, police, private researchers, blackmail artists, and collectively they add up to a kind of super Pinion file. Right. And, you know, it's just the, it's like the Pink Ballots, you know, it's an umbrella yeah. term to describe various things. Uh, and on first reporting what he knew, Pinion said the police just wrote him off as an embittered cuckold you know, just trying to cheat his way to gain the custody of his kids. Uh, around a month later, Pino's workplace was also the victim of a similar burglary uh, to his home. And then, 
he starts getting rightfully so paranoid. He thinks his life is in danger. You know, he, he gets advice from a police officer who tells him to lay low for a while. And so he rents uh, an hotel room. So in December of 1979, Josiane was detained by the judiciary police of Neville. The cops read parts of the transcripted discussion with Dr. Pignon. Um, and in them, Josiane denied ever taking part in any kind of sex party. But then she retracted what she said a little later on. And she admitted she had talked to her husband about these parties, but she said she never attended any where minors were present, where there were kids. The police were trying to find out more about the kids who may or may not have attended these parties, but they couldn't find anything about them. And it's not like they had a lot to work with either because nobody wants to be affiliated with this. This is rapidly becoming toxic. In February of 1980 then, the investigation was closed down after surveillance on some of the names given to the police, you know, mainly uh, one of the doctors. It turned up nothing. They couldn't find anything. And the police decided that nothing in the transcript of the tape indicated really that minors were actually attending these parties. This represents the end of the first phase of the Pignon story. Now, at this point, it hadn't become public yet, you know, these allegations of child abuse parties. And so the whole affair seemed like it had reached a dead end. However, Pignon was digging with Louvigny, you know, the clunky private detective, trying to find more about these pink ballots. Uh, he was basically telling his story to anyone who was willing to listen. And that's when he found out uh, about another person who apparently knew about these parties. And she's named Christine Doré. She said she was the former wife of the yacht judge that participated in the parties. And according to her, they were specifically held for blackmail reasons. Everything was taped and minors were brought in, you know, as previously stated. She spoke about how she and her husband had orgies with VIPs in big villas in, in the Wallon Brabant. Uh, she names gendarmerie generals. Uh, she names Prince Albert of Belgium. She names industrialists, politicians, doctors. Uh, even some of the regular attendance wives would just join in, you know, as well as prostitutes brought in as reinforcement. And those prostitutes were headed by a madame who called herself Tuna, Fortunato Israel, as we just talked about, was leading one of the largest prostitution rings in Belgium. She goes into details about, you know, the, the, the whole parties. She tells the story of this young boy uh, who had apparently came from an orphanage institute and who, quote-unquote, killed himself by sticking a knife in his back. There was another boy, another participant at the Pink Ballets, who fell in love with one of the adult women who attended the parties and shot himself when she broke up with him. There was also the story of this woman who participated in the parties who died in a car accident after leaving a pink bullet drugged out of a mine. So Pignon was convinced that there was more to this story and he kept trying to find help to establish his case. But this time in the Belgian press and the media, this was his plan. And his two big options, if you wanted to make the story public, that was Nouvelle Europe magazine, uh, which was obviously the far-right magazine we discussed last episode. Um, but from time to time, it would run gossip stories on Belgian elites. It wasn't purely, you know, a political rag. Then there was Poor magazine. Uh, it's spelled P-O-U-R. That was a leftist one. Uh, 
This was created in 1973. It was headed by Jean-Claude Garot, and it was inspired by the May 1968 movement, you know, the uprisings in, in uh, France. It was anti-Stalinist, it was anti-Leninist, boo, but it reclaimed a Marxist analysis of the current social events in Belgium. Uh, they were calling themselves the publication of the new left. I guess they're kind of Euro-communist, but I'm not sure. Right, I, I think that's the term. Yeah, and coincidentally, our old pal, the duck, Christian Schmetz, he'd written for Nouvelle Europe magazine before, and he gave both NEM and Poor magazine tips for them to write articles interchangeably when he was working for the state security and he had something that he wanted to leak. Pinon getting into contact with Nouvelle Europe magazine was how Paul Latinus and then later on Westland New Post got their hands on a copy of the Pinon file. Uh, so anything that would fall into the hands of the Westland New Post, they would just scan it and then distribute it amongst the more trusted members. That's how they kept, you know, uh, political files on uh, political opponents, you know, leftists. Uh, and they will also keep all these files. We discussed last episode, you know, Latinus had a bunch of them on various people, blackmail and all that, you know. And then true Latinus, it's presumably all Christian Smets, his handler, uh, and others from the state security would gain a copy of the penal file. And if what's inside was true, and it seemed that it got their interest, it would be a powerful weapon for these people to blackmail the people involved in the pink ballots. So Michel Liebert, uh, one of the members of the Westland New Post, had things to say about the penal file that Latinus showed him. He said it was 80 pages long. There were three pictures inside the file taken quickly including one that had to be absolutely indisputable, or whoever took it staged a perfect scene with an insane number of lookalikes. He said he saw Harbour II naked, Van den Buyenens also naked. They were photographed with women, but also kids. And then Paul Latinus, he considered that having this penal file, you know, this blackmail file in his possession, it was his life insurance that he would be protected no matter what. And yet, as we saw in the previous episode, uh, Latinus died, you know. And um, it's, it gets weird after his death because his mother recalls Latinus' police handler, you know, the, the guy he was being an informant to, Officer Marnet. Uh, he would just come by, you know, look for the penal file after he died. And his girlfriend said she never found the copy he had in, in his personal possession, you know, at his house after he passed. So it's a bit of a mystery there what happened to it. NEM turned down Pignon in the end. They said that they couldn't publish the story because of the people accused and involved. I guess they were fearing a, a lawsuit or something. And so Poor stepped in and they had a, they put a team together that was headed by the editor, uh, Garot, and they worked with Dr. Pignon to publish an investigation of the entire scandal in the magazine, including documentary evidence of that from the file itself. Pignon and Garot, Working together, they got in touch with Christine Doré and asked to meet her on June 18th, 1981. And their goal here was to have her tell them again what she'd said before about the pink ballets and to record it. So Garot and Pignon staged a dinner with Doré where she talked to them about who attended those parties. And this time she was being recorded with a tape recorder. Now here are the people that she said she'd seen at the pink ballets. Paul Vanden Buinans, VDB, 
Um, Guy Matho, who was another politician, he was a social democrat who was minister of public works at the time. Gendarmerie Lieutenant General Fernand Bouillet. She said there was a judge there, but she didn't know his name. She also mentioned Charlie Desport and Edel Blaton. They were construction developers, big deals at the time in Belgium. A real estate developer called Jacques Forêt and his wife, Elie DeWitt. Remember these names, especially these last ones. Now, Doré repeated what she had said to Pignon. She said that these parties were being held in private villas, sometimes off the Belgian North Sea coast, but also at the Berkwit Golf Club and at a doctor's private residence. And Garot explained at the end of the dinner that he was a journalist. He revealed his identity to Doré. And that's when she suddenly clammed up. And she said to them, flat out, if they ever published what she'd said, she would completely deny all of it. At this point, Garot became convinced of Pignon's story. And he got to work on publishing all of this information as soon as possible. But then Garot started to feel the pressure because he began receiving phone calls from mysterious men urging him not to run the story. He was offered 5 million francs not to publish it, but he wouldn't stop. He kept working on it. And then what happened? So as he's gearing up to release the Pignon affair to the public, something rather incredible yet kind of predictable happens. On July 5th, 1981, through the night, their offices, the poor officials, and their printing house were burned down by a group of fascists composed of four Youth Front members, including one named Jean-Philippe von Engeland, who later fled to Paraguay, and six Flemish nationalist spikers from the VMO. That's the Nationalist uh, Vlaams Militanten Order. In the last episode, we described how we were mostly going to focus on like the French-speaking fascists and whatnot, um, because they had more bearing on our story. But yet, you can see here that this vision of like you know pan-European fascism was kind of working because clearly, like the youth front was drawing in true believers from like across Belgium's regional divides. You know what I mean? Right, and I I think it's a. Uh... It's specific to the youth front, you know, but they had very good relations with the VMO and they would often, yeah. you know, attend rallies or just, you know, go on exchange, you know, send fascists across the across the, the regions, you know, they would go to their camps and all that. Even if they, in the end, kind of hated each other because, you know, the VMO were separatists, uh, Belgium separatists, they, they were, they found ways to make it work, you know, and when they had to, do stuff like that, like, you know, just turn up and burn the a fucking uh, press office down. They would just like be down, you know, they, they told them this is, uh, this was for the good cause. This was for Europe, man. So you just have to do it. And they would go. If you, if you dream it, it is so, you know, <laughs> exactly. And so they were, they used Molotov cocktails to start a fire, you know, to burn the, the thing down. And, uh, it's funny because, uh, if you remember last episode, we talked about how the duck gave out instructions on how to make them, you know, make these Molotov cocktails to the Westland New Post. It's not the same, you know, it's not the youth front, but there's some parallels here. Also, Pour, the magazine, had already talked about how the youth front before uh, had these training camps in the Harden Woods, you know. They had these far-right militia, uh, sort of boy scout, but also kind of military training camps. Um, and so it seemed to be a good cover-up for the youth front to be implicated in this in this burning, because you know they were doing it for political reasons. They were not doing it for Pinon. They were doing it because 
they had been running these stories about their camps, you know. Right. So I yeah, I see what you're saying. So this attack, they pretended that it was for ideological reasons. It was because Poe was a leftist magazine that had published anti-fascist news articles in the past, but really it's likely they'd been contracted to do it uh, to prevent publication of the Pignon file. Right. They were kind of being manipulated. You know, they were told these are the, this is the, the communist publication, you know, you, you need to burn it down and, you know, they wouldn't even bat an eye. They would just go get on the bike and throw a lot of cocktails at it without even thinking why they were doing it. Mm. Uh, and so this is the, the reason this was the, you know, what was evoked in the, in the press uh, to justify, you know, the burning down. It was because Poor was running these articles, but, uh, one can wonder why, you know, that timing was so close to the publication of the penal file. Um, and then also Pour was about to publish uh, even more articles, you know, on the, uh, on Sepik and Bonvoisin and the Utron was on Newpost and all that. So it's kind of a mess, you know, but you can see uh, the way these, oh, these, you know, these far right thugs were used to just do whatever um, the people controlling them wanted them to do. Yeah, and so a new investigation into the Pignon affair began in August. This was headed up by a judge called Jean de Prêtre. Uh, there were two reasons given for why they began this new investigation. So one was the burning down of the magazine, obviously, and destruction of the printing press and whatnot. That looked like somebody had sent those guys there to cover something up. But also... This is around the time when very strange rumors in the press began to circulate about a burglary epidemic in the Walloon Brabant. And these burglaries focus solely on notables, you know, prominent figures in Belgian society. Some of these people were rumored to have taken part in the pink ballets described by Pignon. De Petre would have Pignon, his wife Josiane, and Jean-Claude Garot interrogated. The notables involved in this part of the affair would not be contacted or interrogated. The investigation was being led very discreetly given the sensitive subject of the case. Christine Drey was interrogated on July 20th, 1981 in the south of France. And this is while she was on vacation. And she told the officers that she made the entire story up out of pity for Dr. Pignon and that she just repeated the things that she thought he wanted to hear. So the investigation, it failed to find the woman who had the freak car accident, but it did find another woman related to the pink ballet scandal who apparently killed herself in a hotel room and left behind a note. Now the investigators said that this was the same woman and therefore she didn't die suspiciously, but given what she was allegedly connected to, it is odd that they immediately bought that this was a suicide and it hadn't been staged in any way or anything. Right. And it's not like, you know, a suicide isn't uh, suspicious. You know, mm -hmm. I think when someone kills themselves, there's always this element that there's something more going on. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the woman in question, she was the wife of Dr. Coquet, and she'd been having an affair with another doctor who was allegedly involved in the pink ballets, uh, Dr. Betans. Now, the officers went on to conclude that this was why she killed herself. Like she had a, you know, broken heart kind of thing. She pulled an Ian Curtis, I suppose. She was in love with two people at the same time. At Dr. Betton's house, a guest book will be found. 
And inside that guestbook, guess what? There were all the names that took part in the orgies, minus Vanden Buyenens and Guy Matteau. Nothing will ever be thought of it, you know, even if it was clearly indicating that these people at least known, knew each other. If not, you know, they were seeing each other regularly and having these parties. Um, in the investigation, no minors related to the Pink Ballets or the, Pino, the Pinot Affair, dead or alive, would be found. And so the investigation will conclude that there were no minors involved in sex parties since no trace of them can be established. But if you stop for a minute and you think about how these pink ballots were organized, it's obvious that there will be great efforts made to hide the minors' presence and that no one would speak out or else they would all be incriminated. Meanwhile, even if only a select part of the attendants were being blackmailed with these young kids, the secret would be kept inside of the private circle. There were no reasons for anybody to speak out about it because the blackmail was working the way it was intended to. You know, it was those needed to be kept in place were kept in place and the others would just enjoy the power over them. And just to play devil's advocate, even if we accept that the pink ballots only involve adults, the alarming rate at which evidence just seemed to disappear from shaker seeker police stations uh, you know, it still indicates that there was something being covered up there. Yeah, and the cover-up of whatever was going on by no means involved every single cop and magistrate and gendarme in Belgium. In fact, there were plenty of them who thought there was something of substance to the allegations of organized child abuse, and it weighed heavy on them as the years rolled on. In 1984, a magistrate ordered another investigation be opened into child abuse at pink ballet parties or partouzes as they were being called now. now it's unclear how quietly this was done and if we assume the magistrate was right you know and there was some kind of child abuse network at the top of belgian society then it isn't hard to imagine that word of a new investigation would leak given all the other leaks that we've already discussed if this investigation wasn't set up discreetly and as a result, the perps could take appropriate measures to cover themselves. And these measures would be, you know, pretty simple. Just don't pimp any kids for a couple of months until the heat dies down. One tactic the Vice Squad tried was to send female cops undercover into the sex parties. So they had them pose as escorts to assess how likely or not it was that children were present at these high society swingers events. But this op was a farce because the two cops were rookies. They had no experience working undercover. And when it came time for the people to start fucking, understandably, these two women bailed without gathering anything useful because, you know, they're not getting paid to do that kind of shit. Right. And in the wake of the Brabant killer attacks, the police were keen to chase any lead that might help them find the gang. Two Brussels detectives, Jean-Paul Pelos and Alain Dienne, were building their own case file on the Pinot affair for years now. And they, they, they decided to follow up on indications that Pinot and the Brabant killer's case were connected. They did this in total secrecy because their commanding officer, Chief Superintendent Renier, was extremely close to Roger Boas. They asked around on the down low, set up a meeting with Mozart. She was more forthcoming this time, and she unequivocally stated that Lydia Montericourt had filmed many of the pink ballots with hidden cameras. And somewhere out there, she said, there were VHS tapes that showed Paul Vanden Bouillonens, Guy Matteau, 
various other power brokers, you know, just having sex with children. She said a real estate developer was extremely close to VDB himself, had paid 140 million Belgian francs to blackmailers to get back a tape, you know, of himself. Um, and her interview leaked to La Dernière Heure uh, a year later in February of 1990. And that's when, you know, in the, in the transcript of the interview, she said this. Lydia told me she had the judiciary in her power because of these tapes. Personally, I think she was released so soon after her arrest to prevent her from dropping a bombshell. Someone whose career and reputation is at risk because he is on tape sodomizing children will want to avoid any scandal. Just as a quick footnote here, you may wonder why the cops were looking for links between the Pink Ballets and the Brabant Killers. We will get to that a little later on. Anyway, Chief Superintendent Reniers, uh, he was so determined not to lend manpower or any other assistance to investigations into the Pink Ballets that as late as December of 1990, so this is 11 years after Dr. Pignon first makes his allegations, Reniers is chasing cops and magistrates away from any Brabant killer's lead that even tangentially connected to the Pignon file. One of these investigators was a magistrate called Freddy Troch, who was initially a skeptic of the Pignon affair and the dark pink ballet's theory. But he found himself being harassed and stonewalled by Renier's men while investigating possible links between, you know, the Brabant attacks and blackmail operations. And he later said, quote, from the beginning, I had nothing but trouble with Reniers and his men. It was only logical that I came to distrust the judicial police of Belgium. And then Maud Saar's reliability was undermined by the press when they found out that she charged 20,000 francs for a TV interview about the pink ballets that she gave in 1990. Another source was a prison warden called Jean Boultot. He'd fled Belgium years before, but he told the cops to look into connections between the Brabant crew and the Pignon affair. A video then conveniently appeared showing him rolling around in a paddling pool filled with jam with two sex workers at a nightclub, which made it easier for the cops and the papers to discredit him. Right. And also, I think if, uh, you know, this guy is on tape doing this kind of stuff, I think there's credibility you know, I, I get why it was, yeah. you know, to discredit him. But at the same time, if he's involved in this shit, you know, he's got, <laughs> he, he, yeah. he knows his stuff, you know, just to say. Yeah. Uh, 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 the man rolls around in jam. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, can you imagine like a, a Brussels nightclub, you know, packed, you know, in, in the 80s. Yeah. And you've got this sort of pool of jam and, you know, these... All these VIPs just, you know, getting in with escorts, you know, on each side yeah. is, is just so crazy. And th they were all photographed and on tape, which is just, it's ridiculous, mm -hmm. really. Um, one of the more reliable voice in all this was Commander Herman Vernayen of the Gendarmerie. Uh, you can remember his name because he will uh, very soon return. He was a courier gendarme and sometimes he seems like the last honest cop in Belgium, really. He had been investigating drug trafficking in the Gendarmerie, and he uncovered photographs of the pink bullets, showing what he described as an ambiguous child abuse. He passed the photograph to his superiors at the time, and they disappeared mysteriously. Shortly afterwards, in 81, someone came calling at his house in the middle of the night, and eight shots were fired through his front door, hitting his wife twice 
and putting her in the hospital. Chief Renier would later tell a parliamentary inquiry that he had been given orders to close down the pink ballot investigation and ensure that nothing was uncovered that might embarrass the Crown. Naturally, conspiracy theorists had a field day, and stories began circulating about high society parties where children were sacrificed to the devil. Belgian institutions had hardly done themselves any favors here, given their conduct over the real system case and the Pignon affair. So Jean de Petri, uh, the investigating judge, he still wouldn't share his copy of the Pignon file. He kept it locked in a drawer in his office. And although he claimed it was bullshit, he said he also wanted to avoid leaks to protect the private lives and reputations of honorable people at the top of the Belgian establishment. Now, you might wonder why he was so keen on keeping the file and what it contained private. Why not just destroy it, you know? Was there maybe something in it that he realized he could use for his own? And just asking questions. Now, no matter why the Polar Magazine printing press and offices were burned down, the timing could not have been a coincidence. You know, it could have been that the fascist groups employed to do the firebombing were manipulated and told it's because of what's about to come out in Paul regarding the far right. And at the same time, it would serve as a great way to silence any sort of public release of the Pignon file and the Pink Ballets to the public. Striking it at that time is undeniably sus. You know, it's all too convenient. And then Christian Doré and Pignon's wife, Josiane, they both indicated the existence of recorded evidence of these parties. And as Nick just mentioned, we do know they were filming these parties because video footage of officials at these things, like frolicking in paddling pools filled with jam, has emerged. Some of the VHS tapes that depicted the dark pink ballets, they were apparently recovered during investigations in the 80s. And there is speculation that... They were part of the Pignon file at some point, but the official inventory was wiped after 1981. And what's even inside the file, the Pignon file, is widely speculated about besides the later WikiLeaks publication. There are no copies of the Pignon file, as far as we know, uh, that have ever leaked from the gendarmerie, and none of the incriminating pictures or tapes have ever turned up. And it seems that at some point, with the Pignon file starting as this official official police file, then it becomes a private investigation file with Pinot and Louvigny. And then you have Paul Latinus who gets his hands on it. Then you have Christian Smets that gets his hands on it. Then you have Jean-Claude Garot, you know, everyone's just like shuffling it around, you know, and it's really unclear what was exactly inside the file, you know, and there was apparently a cleanup done, like you just said, you know, in 1981, where they removed pictures and even the remote VHS tapes. Uh, and then after that, the, the file would never leave uh, Jean de Pret's locker. You know, it was just, it was kept private. Uh, he, he even denied at first the existence of the Pinot file, you know, which doesn't exist. And then he would just acknowledge it and just don't play what was inside. Um, there was also a, a rumored uh, third recorded audio tape so the first one was Pinot's wife was recorded telling him about his parties. Then there was Doré was telling him was telling Pinot and Louvigny about you know the people involved and all the miners and all that. And there was also a third tape uh, which contained a discussion between Pinot and his lawyer. And apparently the tape was taken out the file, you know, by a gendarme working on the case, and it was just wiped clean and put back in the file. 
so the question we can ask is, could it be that what started as the Pinot file quickly became a much larger blackmail file, you know, having blackmail pictures on politicians, very important people? Uh, did it become imperative for the ruling class to shut down this investigation or else it would blow up and reveal secrets, especially if the, you know, the Belgian crown is involved? Uh, it surely wasn't about Dr. Pinot and his divorce anymore. It was just a matter of hiding what had almost been found out. What about also the Westland New Post knowledge of the file? It could explain why people like Latinus had leverage over politicians and other officials later on, as we saw in the previous, in the previous episode. Some of the Westland New Post members also were gendarmes and very suspicious ones at that, like Madani Bush, which we will talk about at large later on in the series. You know, and there were rumors about these gendarmes building up a blackmail file in the 80s to ensure impunity in whatever they were doing. So could the Pinot file have been part of that, or, you know, in some way, or even related to that? It's also worth pointing out as well that um, while I tend to believe that underage um, girls and boys were at these parties, it doesn't necessarily have to be that dark for the blackmail material to still have some weight and influence. You know, if you're a public figure, if you're Prince Albert and someone has a tape of you, you know, fucking a sex worker while you're on a business trip to Saudi Arabia or something, that's still enough to basically ruin you in the public eye, you know? Um, so just the embarrassment of even being part of like a vice ring is enough very often. Do you see how, you know what I'm saying? Right. And even when you see, oh, you know, he vehemently denied having a, um, a daughter, you know, yeah. that we talked about last episode, you know, for years she claimed she was his daughter and she just flat out denied before being proven by DNA. It makes you wonder, you know, if, because, okay, this is embarrassing for the crown, you know, the king having uh, an unknown daughter, but yeah. like even just pictures of the king being involved, you know, in sex parties, it would just, I think it would lead the, the country in a crisis. Honestly. And in fact, later in 1997, the parliamentary inquiry into the police malfunctions inside the Brabant killer's case would admit that the pink ballets existed, the adult ones at least, the true pink ballets. Now, by then, most of the alleged participants had died or moved up to untouchable heights in the Belgian establishment. Albert, for example, had been king since 1993. I believe. So there's no way that they're going after him. The inquiry report said, in fact, quote, the existence of pink ballets was indeed confirmed, at least in the 1980s, but without the involvement of minors ever having been proven. The observations made concerning the way in which the cases cited have been dealt with are of such a nature that protection cannot be excluded. Thus, in the Montaricar file, we do not find any elements relating to research into the presence of a minor who would have been active in the network. The warrant to investigate safes abroad has not been executed. Not all of the seized documents were filed with the registry. We also note the disappearance of an album of photos of prostitutes, a file of the gendarmes responsible for the case, as well as a diary containing the names of prominent people. Finally, this Montali car file was handled extremely quickly. The Israel file was also the subject of special treatment and resulted in a rapid classification. We are also witnessing the disappearance of a certain number of pieces of evidence taken during searches, 
in particular, a table plan including the name of one or more personalities. Finally, we note the lack of rigor in the investigation with regard to Israel's relations with certain people. It is surprising then that in the investigation carried out in the Eurosystem Hospitalier file, a classification without further action was quickly decided while an apostille still has to be executed. The commission finally recalls the role played by the prosecutor, Depretre, in the investigation of certain cases. It was Mr. Depretre, in his capacity as first substitute, who had the Fortunato Israel case closed. The commission considers that the files in question were not processed normally. So they're basically saying there that all protocols were violated to cover something up. discussed in episode one how because of the way that Belgium's institutions are set up you know the the calcification of the political process the entrenched divisions the patronage system the machine politics very often that has created space for um, corruption to thrive essentially and so what you find is that although the pink ballets uh, came to you could say popular attention in 1979, the rumors had been there for years before circulating, you know, on the fringes. When the Dutroux affair broke in the mid-90s, the Pink Ballet scandal resurfaced. And as Nick has said before, anytime there's a major scandal in Belgium now, this happens. You know, the talk of the Pink Ballets resurfaces. And I think in large part, that's because the Belgian institutions, the people at the top of them, have done themselves no favors by implementing such obvious cack-handed cover-ups. Would you say that's fair? I mean, they've arguably fueled the flames of conspiracy theories more than anyone else in this in this story. Absolutely, and like uh, in, in a way, you, you can think of um, the pink ballots as uh, the way Belgian society is being ruled. You know, it's just like uh, this endless uh, blackmail of you know and these. These elites, you know, just entrapping themselves uh, and making sure their whatever they want done is done. You know, I think it's uh, very indicative that uh, no matter what we're talking about, the pink ballots, you know, always come up. There's uh, there's something there. You know, it's not just this. As we've seen this episode, it's not just rumors. It's like this this thing that's lurking behind Belgian society and. Anytime something happens, you know, whether it's terrorist attacks like the Brabant killers, or it's a pedophile scandal like Dutroux, or, you know, even just, um, the, the Pinot affair, like it's, it started, starts out as a sex party, you know, a, a wife and having a sex party is a scandal, you know, and it's, it explodes into this 
enormous thing. And then you have this, these business deals, uh, you know, uh, with Belgium and Saudi Arabia. And then you have these, of course, these prostitutes and this sex parties involved. It's like, it's just at this point, it's almost like it's, it's part of how Belgium works, you know, and it's, it's pretty scary. You know, it's, it, this is how the, the, the Belgian state was built. Well, I was saying to you before we recorded that in a very bleak way, the Euro system hospitalier scandal is actually proof for anyone in Belgium who doubts that Belgium is a real country. That scandal is kind of proof that you guys are at this point because once you are entering a construction deal with the Saudis, you're a real country. You become even more real when you start pimping women <laughs> to the Saudis. And then once you're involved in money laundering schemes and you know child orgies, you're in the big leagues at that point. But the, I think, not to get too sooty, but I think the fact that this specific type of corruption keeps being alleged about people in power in Belgium and in Britain, it tells you quite a lot about the the lack of faith, frankly, that people have um, in you know the politicians and the the people at the very top of the pyramid. Because despite these, you know, these things being rumors, uh, I, I think it's the same in uh, in Britain. You know, like most of the people uh, you would ask in the street, like would believe you if you told them uh, the, the these politicians and uh, and the VIPs were you know involved in these in these scandals. Because, like you said, there's a lack of trust. You know. Uh, between government and, and the people and, uh, and for good reasons most of the time. Uh, so it, I don't know. It's like, it's very particular, you know, but at the same time, it's, it's just like, it's almost part of history, you know, and that's the worst thing about it. Like <laughs> when you think, uh, about Belgium, when you ask people about Belgium, like most of the time <laughs> they'll tell you about pedophilia scandals, you know, it, it, it's the, it's, it's the reality of, of of Belgium, I guess. I think it speaks as well to how remote and detached, you know, the, the ruling class is in a lot of ways from like Belgium and from Britain as well. You know, I mean, they are weird people. They go to like boarding schools where they do weird shit to each other as part of the, you know, the class bonding rituals. And then they go to universities where they, take part in bizarre hazing activities. I mean, you remember, I don't know if you've heard about the story of David Cameron, our prime minister. He, um, with the, with the pig head, with the pig head, you know, and nobody has trouble believing that because that is what these fucking <laughs> right, right. are like, you know? And so, yeah, it just seems like it's not just wild, crazy, satanic panic conspiracism. This stuff is based off, what we know already about how fucking strange these people are, how their money just right. kind of detaches them from the regular ebb and flow, you know, of day to day human life. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's just something I've talked to you a lot, uh, you know, in, in our private discussions, but like you have to think about this on a very low human level. Like these are sex parties, you know, sex parties I think are pretty common you know, uh, amongst all classes of people. So it's it's really not like, like you said, some far-fetched uh, satanic panic bullshit, you know. Uh, it's just, you know, when you think about it, it's just these people getting together, having sex, and then, you know, someone's recording, and then you show in uh, a, a kid or, or something because you want to 
to keep uh, this guy on, on the leash, you know. And like, I, I don't think it's that far fetched, to be honest. Yeah, because I think when you initially start talking about this stuff, you know, more, I guess, kind of grounded people will naturally think, well, it's not like every single rich person is some depraved, you know, child rapist who's like going to country villas and participating in weird satanic ritual abuse. And it's like, we're not saying it works like that. I think a lot of the time, the way it works is you get these guys good and fucked up. You basically put them in a room with somebody. And then the next morning, as they're sobering up, you hit them with the fact that you fucked a kid, mate, and we've got you on tape, you know? Um, I don't think it's as formal all the time, you know, it's like they're all in black robes, like... Let's not say it's common, but, like, it's really not as uncommon as people think. Like you said, like, obviously not all these... Hopefully not all the politicians are involved in stuff like that, but, like, my guess would be that, of course, there are people who do this shit, you know? And, like, I think what uh, our research has proved in this episode is that there, there's something there, you know. There's definitely there are there were pink bullets in the eighties in Belgium, you know. So I think people hopefully uh, understood where where we are going with this. Yeah, I mean, one more thing I'll say as well. Uh, my Russian friend, I won't name him because he's very shy, but my Russian friend, um, a couple of years ago when the Epstein stuff broke, uh, he, I remember him saying how funny he found it about all the, you know, the skeptic op-eds that were being written about what happened the night he died and so on. Because he said, if this shit happened in Russia, nobody in Europe or America would have problems like pointing out, like calling it what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And nor would anybody have any doubt that the people that, the Russian Epstein in this hypothetical scenario, the people in his orbit had also been taking part in what he was doing, you know. But I think a lot of the time, because we've convinced ourselves that we live in these really free, liberal, democratic, accountable societies, this is the one thing that we absolutely cannot countenance, even when we have fairly compelling circumstantial evidence, as in Jeffrey Epstein's case. We still can't go there. We just cannot bring ourselves (laughs) to do it. Because it, it raises too many questions about the system that, you know, has fostered all of us, you know, as we've grown up and found work and, you know, found friends and stuff. And the whole time the system may well be ruled by people like this. Absolutely. Yeah. And like like you said, there, there's this bias, you know, you you wouldn't think twice about this story if it came out of Russia. But if it comes out of Brussels, you know, Europe's capital, then all these important people, you know, they, there's no way, you know, like this is this this is impossible, you know. This is something the the police would have investigated and found. <laughs> and when you read, when you when you research the, the topic, you you clearly notice that there are, there are dysfunctionments, and this is like. And I think people so far in, in this series have understood how budget works, and so it's just, yeah, just another day, you know, <laughs> just. just this is uh, this is how it is, you know, and like the of course it's possible, you know, it's not just um, this obscure, like you said, uh, black robes beating. It's just like it's even part of part of political life, you know. I think in Belgium. If you were at all familiar with the modern history of Belgium or how ghost stories for the end of the world began. 
then you know where this series is ultimately going. So what we'd like to do here to wrap is to reintroduce the network theory. Those of us who believe that Mark the True is at least partly telling the truth about why he was kidnapping some of his victims believe in the network theory by default. And the theory has it that the True was a fixer for a criminal operation embedded at the top of the Belgian state and that it ran drugs and guns and pimped women and children to members of the establishment for blackmail purposes. Nick and I have discussed this a, a great deal over the last year or so and we have some theories of our own. We think this network existed, of course, and that it was composed primarily of that neo-aristocracy that we've been describing since episode two. The network emerged in Belgium in the aftermath of World War II, and it was enmeshed from the start in a European Cold War milieu of intelligence agencies and neo-fascism, big business, organized crime, and quickly developed into what the French call a political mafia. Crucially, it was able to capitalize on Belgium's strategic importance on the front lines of the Cold War because it recognized the advantages of being a buffer state between the communist East and the capitalist West. It leveraged this to achieve outsized influence on Belgium and even European affairs. And it was assisted by intelligence agencies like the CIA and powerful institutions like NATO and the EU. It didn't even necessarily have to corrupt every single visiting dignitary or Belgian cop or gendarme or magistrate or politician. The network understood that Belgium's grinding bureaucracy, its deeply entrenched political divisions and a patronage system that was older than the state itself would usually be enough for it to operate untouched by the authorities. We think this network reached the peak of its power at some point between the early 70s and the late 80s, and what was left by the mid-90s was a few scattered remnants determined to keep the full extent of its activities a secret. But those wildcard, low-level, psychopathic fixers were still out there, and you can think of them as degenerate samurai, almost, now without masters, mostly working freelance and taking bigger and bigger risks. One of these fixers, Marc Dutroux, was going to fuck up so badly he brought the entire Belgian state to its knees, with the establishment facing a brief but very real threat of all-out revolution. One of the ways the network maintained a climate of secrecy well into the 1990s was through this astonishing capacity for violence. By the time this story is over, it will have stacked bodies up to the 10th floor. And to this end, 1981 is a significant year, not just for the Pignon affair, but because this was also the year that a gang of men were able to break into the Etabeek Gendarme barracks on New Year's Eve and steal a cache of automatic weapons, ammunition, bulletproof vests, and a car. They got away completely clean and the guards on duty that night claimed they never heard a thing. This robbery is now generally agreed to be the first crime committed by the Brabant killers. Some investigators were chasing a link between the Brabant killers and the Pignon case because they believed that some of the attacks the gang carried out were actually assassinations of key witnesses in the Pignon affair. 
disguised to look like robberies. So here are some questions we'll leave you with tonight. If some of these attacks were disguised assassinations, is it possible these hit jobs were folded into a much larger operation? Could this larger operation be a new version of the plan that had been in the works since at least 1973? Was Belgium about to experience not a random sequence of hyper-violent armed robberies and murders, but a campaign of terrorism designed to destabilize the state and finally trigger that authoritarian coup the network bosses had been dreaming of for the better part of 20 years. Next episode, the Belgian autumn continues as the first wave begins. <laughs>